Well, we've been we read Psalm 51, and uh, it's full of desperate requests. Uh, Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sins, cleanse me, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness again, blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. What's the context for this? This is desperation. And, uh, and we're going to just share. I want to share with you a little bit of the background of Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David. And uh, in the Bible, David is one of the people we get the greatest um, the greatest window into um, his life. He's one of the most fleshed out characters in the Bible. Um, maybe besides Jesus, he might be the one that we see the most of the intricate details of his life. So he's the main character for um, much of First Samuel and pretty much all of Second Samuel. He wrote many of the Psalms, and his name keeps coming up again and again in the New Testament. Um, his hunger for God was evident in many of the psalms he wrote. You can hear his desire when he says things like, As the deer thirsts for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, longs after God. He was a shepherd boy. That's where he started out. He was a shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, who trusted God when Israel needed someone to uh, go toe-to-toe with the Philistine warrior Goliath. And he defeated him with a shepherd's sling, but really he defeated him through his faith in God. And he was heralded by the people as the one who slays ten thousands. And uh, he was heralded by God as a man after God's own heart. And the king of Israel, Saul, who existed at that time, was jealous of David and and and. There's a huge chunk in in First and Second Samuel. Basically, there's a manhunt for David. It's it's the most, one of the most epic manhunts in the whole history of Israel, trying to kill David. But he survives this manhunt, and he becomes the second king of Israel. And years later, it says that in the springtime, when most of kings went to war, David decided to stay home. And while he was staying home, he went for a walk on the roof of his palace. And while he was walking up, up there, from that vantage point, he looked down and he saw a woman having a bath. And uh, he desired her. And he asked his people, who is she? And bring her to me. And uh, he slept with her. And um, then the news came that she was pregnant. And so he thought, how can I cover this up? And so his, the, the husband was away he was off at, in the battle where David should have been. But, and so he had him called back from the battle and under the guise of giving a report on the battle. But really, he was there for one purpose. David wanted him to go home and sleep with his wife so that his sin would be hidden. But Uriah, the husband, was a very loyal man. And he said, I can't go home. And, and all my... All my Fellow warriors are out there. They're, they don't get to come home and be at home and, and be with their wife. I, I, I'm gonna, I can't go home because I want to be loyal to the men who I'm going back to serve with. And so David tried to even further to cover up his sin by getting Uriah drunk. And so he, he got him to drink and drink and drink so that he would go stumbling home to his wife. But the next morning, 
he saw Uriah had just slept outside. And so David took it further. He, he sent a message to the, the general of the army, and he said, I'm going to send Uriah back to you. And when I send him back, I want you to put him in the heat of the battle, where the battle is the fiercest. I want you to put him right there. And then when it gets to its, the, the battle is at its climax, he says, I want the soldiers beside him to pull back so that he'll be surrounded and killed. And that is exactly what happened. And out of that, David gained a new wife. He already was married, but he now had another wife, Bathsheba. And you would have got away with all of this. But God sent a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan came to David, and he, he confronted him in a very unique way. He said, uh, I want to tell you about two men in the kingdom. One man was very wealthy, and he had many sheep. And another man was very poor. In fact, his family uh, only had one sheep, and they, they cared for that sheep very tenderly. They really It was their one and only sheep. And then a man came to visit as a guest to the house of the rich man. And instead of uh, taking one of his sheep from his flock to provide uh, food for the meal, he went to the house of the poor man, and he stole the poor man's sheep, and he killed it and fed it to his guest. And when David heard that story, he was so filled with rage and anger at what had happened, this great injustice, that he said, who, who would do such a thing? Who, who is that man? And that's when Nathan dropped the bomb and he said, David, you, you are that man. You are that man. You've committed adultery. You've committed murder. And God knows it all. And he sees it all. That's the context for Psalm 51. That's the context for all of these pleas from David for God to renew his life, forgive his sin, to wash him and cleanse him and restore him. It was apparent that the shepherd boy with a heart after God had lost his way. David's walk with God needed to be renewed. But how could it be? And what about when we sin? How can our walk with Jesus be renewed? We're in a, a little bit of a series here for four weeks where we're talking about walking with Jesus. And walking with Jesus is about knowing God, having a relationship with him, spending time with him like you would with a friend. But it's, it's so much more than just a relationship with a friend because it's friendship with God. Friendship with God, with a capital G. One of the most significant new steps we've taken as a church in this year has been to roll out uh, a discipleship pathway for our church. And it, it contains five, you know, general categories of, of essentials. We believe that are essentials for people who are followers of Jesus to grow in. And one is, is celebrating big, how we come together as a, as, a, as, a, as a big church. Celebrating big and how we come together. Another one is connecting small being together with people in a way that you get known and, and you know others and there's, there's deeper relationship than what we can do in, in a bigger setting. And then the third one is walking with Jesus. That's what I'm talking about today. And then the fifth one is sharing the work, how we partner together as a team to accomplish the mission of Jesus. And then engaging in mission, that's the final thing. 
And that's, uh, you know, how we're, we're not just about sharing the work internally, but we're also uh, reaching out into the world around us. So what's happened is when we laid that out, we also laid out an assessment tool. We said, um, we'd love it if everybody would just do some reflection on their own life. And try to, we wanted to have something helpful to help people to figure out, what's my next step in following Jesus? Like, what's the, what's the next step of obedience that God wants me to do? And so if you want to go to our website, you can see this uh, reflection tool there. Uh, just go to the next steps tab, and it'll be right there. And 113 of you so far have actually done this uh, reflection and come up with uh, a, an, out, an outcome where you said, I, you know, there's lots of th- areas where I could grow. You've seen lots of those, but you picked at least one and said, this is my next step. This is my next step of growth in this year. And so at, in our groups, we're endeavoring to support people in those next steps of growth. And even with resourcing them, we've sent out different e- emails with resources and opportunities to take that next step. We really want to see lots of people growing as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. That's pretty exciting. Um, I want to give you, a, here's a little bit of feedback from some of the stuff we've got in from people. When it comes to the area of walking with Jesus, Eight people, so 113 people did this, this reflection. Out of that, eight people said they, they need, their next step was to take the Alpha course. They're going to take the Alpha course to learn more about Jesus and how they can have a personal relationship with him. That's awesome. Awesome. Eleven people said that their next step is to attend Prayer Summit to learn how to, uh, to learn more about prayer and how to pray. That's awesome. Twelve people said they need to Find music with scriptural or worshipful lyrics that I can use to worship God on my own time. That is a great next step. Thirteen people said they should attend the Set Free Retreat so that I can deal with hurts, habits, and hang-ups that are keeping me from becoming more like Jesus. And that's happening in, in the spring, in March. So that's awesome. Sixteen people said that their next step was attending a Hearing God seminar in the winter to learn how to hear God's voice. Great. 17 said they, they were going to get help finding a Bible reading plan to use on their own. That was their, their next step. 17 people said, um, or no, that was that one. And 55 people, this is one of the, here's some of the bigger ones. 55 people said they, they need to block out time in their calendar to spend time alone with God in prayer and Bible reading. That's huge. 67 people identified their next step as they need to increase they have time alone with Jesus, but they need to increase their time alone with Jesus each day by 5 or 15 minutes. Like they just want more time with Jesus. That's amazing. And then last one, 13 people said that I have learned to incorporate these things into my relationship with Jesus already. And I need to talk to my leaders about how I can help others learn to do the same. Isn't that great? Those are great things. Those are great, great things. People are taking awesome next steps in walking with Jesus, and many of them are steps to see their walk with Jesus renewed. Renewed. Now, what does it mean to renew your walk with Jesus? Well, this spring I got a call from CAA. You know, CAA, if, you, if your car is stuck or you got a flat tire, they can help you or tow you or whatever. So I got a call from them and they said, did you want to renew your CAA? It, it lapsed and you didn't renew it. And were you wanting to renew it? And I said, well, you know, it's COVID season. We're not really traveling very far during this time. And, um, you know, I don't know if I'm really getting my money's worth out of it. So, no, I think I'm going to just let it go. I'm, I'm fine. 
And uh, the guy on the phone was really nice, and he just said, well, okay, great, but just before you uh, go, can we just sort of check your record with us? And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. And he said, okay, I'm just looking at your record right now, and it says, um, actually, a few months ago, you used our services to get your car towed. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot, yeah, I guess that, uh, yeah, I guess that did happen once. Yeah, I guess I get, yeah, okay, right, right. He goes, and I also see that a few months before that, you had another vehicle towed. Oh, yeah, my niece. I remember when she was visiting. Oh, okay, yeah, right, right. Okay, yeah, that happened too. Okay, that's good. And a few months before that, it seems like there was another tow job. I was like, anyhow, not only did I renew my relationship with CAA, I upgraded my package. I, was, I forgot about all the benefits there are to CAA and how much I was using them. And you know what? One of the things that God did with the Israelites to really help them was he told them again and again, remember what I've done for you. Do not forget all of the benefits that I've provided in your lives. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12 is, uh, is one of those great uh, warnings about forgetting He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Don't forget what God has done for you. He gave you so much that you didn't provide for yourself. Now, some people say, well, what? Whose cities were these? Well, the short answer is the Amorites. The long answer is there's lots of ites that were part of the package. But this is one of the more troubling passages of Scripture, actually, for a lot of people when it comes to Christianity. And I, fi- I find it very interesting because you can look at it two ways. And you can be troubled two different ways. So I'm going to not only tell you about the one way that people are troubled with it, I'm going to tell you about the other way you could be troubled with it. Can you believe that I'm going to do that? The one way people say, well, wait a second. So God took a whole people group and turfed them out of the land of Israel or the land of Canaan, it was called at the time. He turfed them out of them so the Israelites could come and have their cities and have their houses and have their vineyards and, their, and all that stuff. Yeah. And they, it was a battle to do that. People died, and people are like, this is terrible. This is terrible. A lot of people have a lot of objection to this, this thing that happened, right? So why would God do such a thing? Well, my conviction is, if I lived during that time, I would not be asking, why would God do such a thing? My question would be, why did God wait so long to do that? Now, why would I say that? God told Abraham that this was going to happen that even though he promised him this land of promise, this land filled with milk and honey, as it was called, uh, that they wouldn't, the Israelites wouldn't get to settle there as a people for for many years. In fact, the Amorites, which is sort of the the generalized term for the people groups that lived there in some ways, the Amorites, God said, he said, I'm going to allow them to live there for 400 years. Now, the Amorites practiced all sorts of wicked uh, practices, 
And one of the most notable ones was that when they worshipped their idols, when they worshipped their false gods, when they worshipped Molech or Baal or other different idols, that they would sacrifice their children as part of that worship, like a human sacrifice of their own children. So I want to just ask you a question. I'm just going to make an assumption that you think sacrificing children is an evil practice. Would you be crying out to God and saying, why did you turf these people out of the land? Or would you be crying out to God and saying, why did it take you 400 years to turf these people out of the land? If there was going to be 12 to 16 generations, that's about 400 years. If there was going to be 12 to 16 generations of people who sacrificed their children and fi- like burnt them in fires. If that was going to happen generation after generation after generation, your accusation against God would be, why did you have these people, the slate wiped clean and get rid of these people? Your accusation is, why did you wait? When I read the Bible, I'm just telling you this, just give you some context, because you'll probably run into this someday and you'll wonder about it. When you read the Bible, you're going to find out that sometimes God's judgment comes swifter than you would have judged. And you'll say, whoa, God, you were quick to respond, and I just think you should have been a little easier on these people or something. And then other times, you're going to read the Bible and you're going, my goodness, God, why did you, why were you so patient? Why were you so why were, you, why were you waiting so long for them to repent? Why didn't you judge them quicker? So here's the thing that I do when I read the Bible. I sometimes go, whoa, I wish I would have, I would have done that faster. I would have done that slower. I would have been quicker to judgment. I would have been slower to judgment. As I go back and forth reading the Bible, I eventually go, okay, wait. I'm not God. And he is. And I don't know in the, in, the, in the understanding of God about all these things, why this and why that. And so I trust in the one who judges justly, just like Jesus did. That's actually a quote about Jesus. He, when he was facing the injustice of being false, uh, negative, uh, <laughs> the cross and all those things, he trusted in the one who judges justly. It's a verse I come back to quite a bit when I encounter things in the Bible I don't understand about God's action. But God was an equal opportunity judger in this regard. Because you say, well, God was nice to the Israelites and mean to the Amorites. It just seems unfair. Not so. God warned the Israelites, when you come into this land and you start to wonder about how the people of this land used to worship their gods, he expressly warned them, do not do what they did. And he expressly warns them, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, not to commit human sacrifice. Do not sacrifice your children in the fire, in the worship of false gods. Now, you know, if you know the story about the Israelites, they were pretty bad in their obedience to God. Like, they'd obey for a season, and then when they got prosperity and everything went well for them, they would forget God, just like this command tells them not to do. And then... God would bring judgment on them, and then they would return to God, and back and forth and back and forth. But in the history of Israel, they did come to a dark, dark chapter when they adopted the worship practices of the Amorites, and they began to sacrifice their children in the fire. And God turfed them out of the land. 
In came the Assyrians and took the Israelites, or the, the northern kingdom of Israel, into captivity. And in came, and years later, it was years later for Judah, because they had more of a, they were more likely to repent than the northern kingdom. They still needed to be judged, but, and God turfed them out of the land through the Babylonians. I'm saying all this to tell you that God is serious about sin, but there's two ways that I know that he's serious about sin. One, because I see that God judges sin. God hates sin, and he judges sin. So he's serious about sin. That's one thing. But the other thing I see that shows me how serious God is about sin is how serious he was in rescuing people from sin. The great lengths he went for you and me to separate us from sin. So here's the reality. Sin will separate you from God. Or God, in his mercy and grace and forgiveness, will separate you from sin. You're going to either end up attached to your sin and go down with that, or you're going to be in relationship with God, and he's going to, he's going to uh, have you with him. So he was serious about a rescue plan. He, out of love, he sent Jesus to save us from the judgment our sin deserves. And we read about that in John three sixteen and 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 on. It says, "For God so loved the world, he loved sinful people. He hates sin, but he loves sinful people. That includes you. That includes me. He loves us. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son." into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So I want you to think about this. Sin, make, it, sin comes attached with condemnation. You've experienced it. You've done something and you know it's morally wrong. And you know it inside. And you, and you say to yourself, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I don't feel good about that. I shouldn't have done that. And you, no matter what you do with it going forward, you just know something is just not right now. This is wrong. And you feel condemned. And you know what? You don't even need someone from outside of you to tell you that was wrong. You are saying it to yourself. You're like, why did you do that? Oh. The condemnation comes from your own conscience. Sin comes with condemnation. So what does Jesus do? Does he come to say, I'm going to tell you even more how wrong you are. I'm going to heap condemnation on top of condemnation. I'm going to bury you in condemnation. We could have, but he doesn't. He comes to free us from condemnation. The condemnation that rightly goes with our sin. He says, I'm going to set you free from that. I'm here to, I'm here to forgive sin. I'm here to give you a clean slate. I'm here to give you a pure heart. I'm here to renew you in your walk with God. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. They're already in that condition because of their sin, because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, they, so that it may be seen plainly that what they've 
done has been done in the sight of God. So lots of things about sin. Sin sin brings condemnation, and sin makes us hide. In fact, when Adam and Eve were sinned in the first, like in the garden, that was the first thing they did. They hid, right? Their eyes were open. They realized what they'd done was wrong, and they hid, right? They fashioned garments out of, like, fig leaves and stuff like that, and then they hid. And then God comes to walk with them, walk with God, walk with Jesus, right? He comes to walk with them, and they're hiding, and, and he asks, you know, basically a question just to expose where they're at. Adam, where are you? I was afraid. I was ashamed. I just realized now we're naked, and I hid. It's like, whoa. Whoa. That's what happens with sin. We hide. It makes us hide. We hide from God. We hide from each other. I mean, there's, there's stuff we've done, and we're just like, I'm never telling anybody that. I'm taking that to the grave. If people really knew me, if people knew what I've done, they wouldn't love me. They would reject me. And so we hide. That's what sin does in our lives. But Jesus didn't come to condemn us. For people that are condemned already, he didn't come to add condemnation. He came to save the world from the condemnation of sin through his sinless life, through his sacrificial death, through his forgiveness offered to all humanity. He made it possible for people to live in the light again, to come out of hiding. I think, that, I think it's one of the, the, the simplest application or truths that we get out of the story about Jesus is that you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. God sent Jesus to send a very clear message to all of us that when we sinned, when we rebelled against God, when we were indifferent towards God, where we in, in any which way just disregarded God in our lives, that God loves us still, he's willing to forgive those sins, and he wants us to be his family. He wants us to be his sons and his daughters. You don't have to hide anymore. You can come into the light. Those things, maybe they're like David, adultery, murder, who knows what. You think they can't be forgiven, but they can God stands willing to forgive. And that's the great thing about it. He is, he's here, ready to forgive our past. Ready to give us a brand new future. And David experienced this. David did his, you know, he did his, you know, Psalm 51. You read about his, God, his pleas to God. And then here's Psalm 32, 1 to 5. And I think it's great. It, this is what he says. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one, blessed means happy. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whom and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Why would there be deceit? Well, deceit is there when you just got to hide, right? You got to lie about who you are and what you've done and all those things. But now I can be real. I can be authentic. I can be open before God because he's not counting my sins against me. And then he talks about what it was like when he was hiding his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away 
through my groanings all day long. Uh, I think there's a common phrase that's used now, and it's probably just more in the mental health circles. You're only as sick as your secrets. Have you heard that one before? You're only sick as your Anyone heard that? Am I the only one who's heard that? Oh, my goodness. I thought it was really common. But there's stuff that we've internalized, and it's not making us better, actually. It's making us sicker. And there is something wonderful when you can actually bring something out into the light. You know, obviously, some stuff you've got to bring it out with someone who can do confidentiality really well. I think that's why, you know, the helping professions like counseling and stuff like that are just, there's greater and greater needs all the time. People's got stuff inside them, and they've they got to get it out somehow, but they don't want anyone else to know, so they, they take it to somebody who, that's their job, to keep that a secret, Right? So when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though my, through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So that was his condition, hiding his sin. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. You know, uh, this is something I, I often tell people is that when you confess your sins to God, it shouldn't leave you down. It should bring you up. Because you, I mean, first you're reckoning with what you've done and, and you're agreeing with God about it. That's what confession is. You're agreeing with God that it's sin. Even in the categories that God uses, Right? So there's lots of ways that we will sort of try to justify our actions, or even people for us will do that. You know what? You say, man, I did this dastardly thing, and then people will come. And we might even be almost fishing for it, but people would come back and say, oh, you know, you're just human like the rest of us. It's, you know, we, we get it. We all, nobody's perfect and stuff like that. But when you actually use the categories the Bible uses for sin, it's probably more helpful, right? If David was to say, yeah, I guess I had a little indiscretion, yeah, I don't know, you know, the way I treated Uriah wasn't quite right. It would be better to say, this is adultery, and there's probably more. Like, the way he's, like, he sinned against Bathsheba, probably the truth is the power dynamic involved in being a king and being just a woman in the kingdom alone without her husband around there's probably a lot more sin involved there than we're even recognizing by just saying adultery. But if he just said, oh, it's an indiscretion. No, no, it's, that's adultery. It's part of one of the Ten Commandments. And that was murder. When you face sin in all of its ugliness, I, I think it's more helpful. And the way that I think it's more helpful is because if you sort of skirt around it or try to make it less than or something like that, and then you're asking God to forgive, well, it's, you're really all, it's almost like you're not even asking God to fulfill, forgive the whole thing. If you really say, this was wrong, this was, this was unjust, this was evil, and then God forgives that, you have something in your heart to know that, oh, my goodness, his grace is way greater than my sin. Right? I often find, I find that when people get sinned against, 
They have that same, same ten, you know, they say, they say, they're in to see me. Oh, I can't sleep. I'm anxious. Things are going on in my life. I say, well, what's the root? We get to it. And it's like, oh, someone did something to you. It sounds like, and I'll say it. It sounds like they did this sin to you. And then they'll say, well, it's not that, it's not that big of a deal. Well, then why did you come to see me? You're in knots over this. No, I think you should call it sin. You've been sinned against. Because once you call it sin, there's only one solution for sin, and that's forgiveness. That's the solution God gives us. It isn't like, you've sinned, okay, be perfect the rest of your life, and I might, no. He says, I'm, I'm coming to forgive. In fact, I'll take the punishment your sins deserved on the cross so that you can be forgiven. I'll be the sacrifice. I'll take your place. I'll pay your debt so you can walk away debt-free, so you can have relationship with God forever. So when you confess your sin, agree with God what it is. This is this sin. And repent of it. Turn away from it. And then at the end, because your sin was great, but his grace was greater, focus on him. So that's how forgiveness goes from sort of it's sad, but then it, it gets joyful. Because the end result is a focus on him. It should lead to praise. It should lead to praise. I remember um, reading uh, about John Newton. John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, but he, was, he needed amazing grace. Uh, you know, some of you might know the story. He was involved in the slave trade and later came to repent. And in fact, some of his writings and, and conversation with William Wilberforce led to the abol- abolition of the slave trade in England. Um, but he, he said at the end of his life, I can't find it in my notes, but basically, I, I, yeah, at the age of 82, John Newton said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. When you confess your sins to God, it's an acknowledgement that you've sinned. Maybe you even say, I'm a great sinner, and that's not great. But he's a great savior. His grace is greater than our sin. And so the end of the thing is don't keep looking at yourself. That's discouraging. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. You know, the Israelites, God gave them a little bit of a, uh, he gave them a little bit of a, um, a way, a, a, I don't know what the term to use for it, but a little bit of a, a game plan for when they stray from him, how to come back to him. Uh, in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So humble yourself, and then start focusing on God again, and talking to him through prayer. Turn from your wicked ways, repent, say, acknowledge what they are, but he'll forgive, and he'll heal. That's his promise. He'll forgive and heal. So at the end of the day, if you, if you keep focusing on yourself, my goodness, you're just stuck in religion. It's not going to be healthy. 
If you're still focused on your performance, how you failed, and how you're a failure, there's no life in that. There's no life in that. But if you focus on him, there's incredible life in that. He delivers. He forgives. He heals. He restores. He so loved me. The wonderful journey of Christianity is a journey of self-forgetfulness. It's a journey of self-forgetfulness. There's an old hymn I sung growing up. Or maybe it was a chorus, I can't remember. But forget about yourself. Or So forget about yourself. Concentrate on him. Anyone know this? And worship him. Just a great line. Forget about yourself. Forget about yourself. Concentrate on him. If that's what you do with your life, you're going to have a lot of joy in your life. Because he's awesome. He's incredible. He is a great savior. And he has saved me. And the headline over my life is not that I'm a great sinner. The headline over my life is that he's a great savior. The headline is not over Steve failed again. It's that Jesus forgives. He saves. He redeems. He's made me his child. So that's where confession always needs to lead to joy. It always needs to thankfulness. It always needs to lead to gratitude. If you live, your sin can lead you two ways. It can lead you to just living in guilt and, and, and shame. Or it can lead you to the greatest gratitude you will ever experience in your life. And that's the miracle of the gospel, is that God turns the thing that would have turned into our greatest guilt into our greatest gratitude. So people who've done evil things, praise God with tears streaming down their face, with joy in their heart, knowing the love of God in a deep, deep way. And they know with every fire of their being, they didn't earn it and they don't deserve it, but God gave it. And they live in great joy. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. What well, doesn't make sense in the natural? It doesn't make sense in how we think, and, but it's his grace. James 4, 6 to 10 says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Have you experienced the favor of God when you humble yourself before him? I know I have. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Great promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Another great promise. Wash your hands, you sinners. That's what he's saying. Purify you, your hearts, you who are double-minded. This is, this, this is the going down part. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is all the part of repentance. This means like if you're just sort of being casual about sin, God is serious about sin, you be serious about sin. But the end result is humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. I'll tell you a story. I haven't shared this story publicly like this since it happened about 30 years ago. 
I was, um, I was going, uh, it was just finished my time in Bible college and there was an opportunity to travel to England and to, with an outreach team and to do some work in uh, British schools, you know, teaching them about uh, Canadian sports, which are basically American sports, by the way, other than, you know, our football special. Um, and, uh, and then also to speak in their religious education classes, because that's something that all they have there. So they would allow us to speak in the religious education classes about our perspective as Christians and to talk about Jesus. It was a pretty amazing opportunity. So we're not booked in all these schools, and we went there. And uh, the staff leader for this trip was a, a professor at the Bible College by the name of Dave Wicks. I don't know if you ever heard of the guy, but anyhow, pretty nice guy. Anyhow, so he took us over there, and we were speaking in these schools, and then we'd speak in, in churches and at youth centers, and we just had this really full slate of things we were doing. But it was an awesome experience, and um, so there'd be often times where, you know, maybe we'd do a drama or something or something in some setting and, uh, to illustrate stuff, and then someone would get up and talk about either the scriptural principle we were trying to tell about or give a testimony from our own lives. And so we were doing a lot of talking after things and sharing again and again and again. And um, so I'd got lots of time. And for me, this was sort of, I was getting a chance to talk in front of people and found that I could do it a little bit. It, wasn't, it sort of came to me somewhat naturally, which I was surprised at because I hated oral reports in high school. So I was like, oh, I, I guess I got something here. I could say. And, and, and Dave Wicks was really encouraging me. He was saying, Wow, you did really good. That's great. Now, he's just a natural encourager. I'm sure he encouraged everyone on the team, but he just kept telling me, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. And I was like, this, is, this feels wonderful. I'm contributing to this team. I'm having this great experience on this wonderful trip, and I'm getting lots of encouragement for the parts that I contribute. It's awesome. And in fact, I was getting so built up and stuff like that that, that this opportunity came to, uh, we were going to go to this one church, and uh, we were going to uh, have a service, but then uh, Dave Wicks had asked me, he said, Steve, I wonder if you would uh, just share a testimony that night to really encourage the people. And I was like, oh, yeah, or I don't know how he said it, but, you know, that's how I remember it. So I said, yeah, sure, okay. So I went back to where I li- was staying, and I thought, what am I going to share? I really want to encourage these people, but I don't know what I should exactly say. And I'm trying to think for my own life, you know, of something that would be really encouraging and of course, you know, I felt like I'd been exceeding expectations through this whole trip. And, and uh, anyhow, this moment came where I just sort of thought, well, I don't know anything from my life that's really that dynamic, that's really going to encourage people. And I'd been reading a devotional by some amazing Christian who had amazing Christian experiences. And at a certain point, as the deadline was coming closer and closer for us to go to this church and for me to share something that would really encourage the people... I made a bad decision. I decided that what I had read in one of the amazing stories I'd read in the devotional, I decided I don't really have much to share, so I'm, I'm going to take this story that this person shared about their life and I'm going to get up and share it like it's my own. And I did. People came to me afterwards and said, wow, that was great. That really blessed me. That really encouraged me. And, and they were all happy, but I wasn't happy. I knew I felt it all on the inside, the guilt of what I had done. 
I wasn't going to tell Dave Wicks about this. I wasn't going to tell anyone about this. I was going to take this one to my grave. So I came back to Canada after that trip, and um, I went. Uh, there's a program that was running called Street Vaders, and I'd never been on it before, and I was excited to take that in as well. It was another outgo- you know, missions thing. And uh, so I went on this program, and they were leading up to a point where they were going to commission us to go out and really just try to reach people for Jesus. And I was like, really wrestling with God in some ways, like sort of, I had all sorts of questions in my mind about what, where, what God wanted for my future and all sorts of different things. And, and one night in particular, I was just sort of struggling and, and, and I just, things were not well with me and I just was sort of felt like God was at a distance and, you know, all these different things. So I found a, a friend who was a little bit older than me and he, you know, uh, and I, more experience and stuff like that. And I just sort of started to talk to him and saying, you know, I'm just, you know, about, I don't know about this about God and that about God and this about my future. And I just feel like I want to be close to God, but I feel there's a distance between me and God. And then as the conversation went on, because he was such a good listener, I just finally just was like, I told him. I said, I'm really not doing good. I did something wrong, like really wrong. And I didn't think I'd ever tell anyone, but I think I can tell you. And I told them what I had done in England. And uh, anyhow, I, I just was sort of laying it all out. Now, I sort of assumed that he would do what most Canadians would do. Hey, you're only human. Nobody's perfect. You know, don't beat yourself up. He didn't do that. He said, I, I think that's called deceiving people. That is the biblical definition for it, actually. So I was like, Yeah. That was hard to hear. And he said, you know, there's a story in the Bible, of course, you know it, the story of Jacob. He was a deceiver. That hurt to hear. And he wrestled with God and wouldn't let go of God until God blessed him. He pled for God to bless him. And in the end, God changed his name to Israel. From Jacob the deceiver to Israel. And he said, Steve, I think if you don't want to be a deceiver anymore, you have to wrestle with God until he changes your name. So I thought, how do I stop being a deceiver? And I thought, well, I maybe have to take this to another level of confessing it. And so I went to meet with Dave Wicks. And I said, uh, I got to tell you something I did in England. And and I, I confessed it to him, and, I, and again, I sort of maybe inside was hoping that he'd say, it's okay, everybody makes mistakes, it's not such a big deal, we're all human. I thought, I was hoping he'd land somewhere in that category, and that, or he'd just say, you're forgiven, move on in life. But you know what he said to me? He said, you know, you, know, you didn't really sin against me so much, but you did deceive those people. Maybe you should just write a letter to the leadership of that church. And I remember just this big inside of me going, oh, oh, no, no, no. Those people liked me. <laughs> they encouraged me, and, they said, and I encouraged them with even my deceit. I, I don't want to, but I th- here was what I was coming to reckon with. 
God was doing some good things in my life, and it sort of looked like this was going to lead somewhere. And I didn't know where it was going to lead, but I sort of thought I wanted it to lead towards me being useful to God in the future and, um, and serving God, ministering for God, not necessarily in a vocational role, but just doing it as a disciple and being a follower of Jesus that really had a close relationship with God. And so I was almost seeing like what was happening was like, the people that was really vouching for me at that point in my life, like Dave Wicks and here this church in England that had basically said, anytime you want to come back, you come back. We'd love to have you back here. Like there's, these were the people who were in my corner, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of them. <laughs> that if I was honest and if I confessed my sins, I was afraid that they wouldn't be in my corner anymore. And I felt like the, sorry, I've never shared this story like this. I felt like the decision I had was I could have this future of people affirming me and saying you're really contributing and, and God's working in your life, or I could have God himself. Like, I could have what I might call ministry, or I could have God, but I couldn't have them both. That's how I thought at the time. I found, I found out through the course of life that wasn't true, but I, I believed that at the time. So I, I wrote a letter of repentance to that church in England. And then I started to just do an inventory of my life. And there was lots of secret sins that had never been acknowledged and some of them I couldn't anymore. Some of them wouldn't make sense for me to go and confess. Like, I mean, you don't go and confess to someone. You know, I secretly hated you all this time. That's a bad thing. Never do that. So I couldn't, some of those I couldn't do. Never do that, by the way. But I couldn't do that. So some of them I just had to confess to God. But some I had to confess to people. And say, you know, I, I lied to you. I deceived you. I, I did these wrong things. But just God, it was just like God was taking me through this full-on spiritual inventory of cleansing in my life. And at the end of it, what I experienced was this incredible renewal in my relationship with God. I never felt closer to God in my life because I'd given up all. Hey, bless you. I'd given up. I felt, again, this is how I thought when I was you know, 21, I felt like I'd given up all and I, and I got God. It was a powerful time. So I look back on that time in my life and I look back and I go, wow. It's like a blueprint for me. I want more of that in my life. Not more of all the agony of, but I see the outcome. And the outcome was amazing. Now, I spent the next year going with one more ministry team. I spent a year with a team called Life Force, went all over Western Canada. And in that season, because I had this sort of this fresh start with God, sort of like David got a fresh start with God, I just felt like me and God, we're partners. Nobody might ever, you know, vouch for me again in any way. But you know what? I've got God. And that's what you get with the gospel. You get God. 
That's the biggest thing you get. Well, there might be all sorts of other side benefits that are great, but you get God. You get relationship with God. You get intimacy with God. You get to walk with Jesus step by step by step. And to get there, I had to go through confession and repentance. But then I experienced this incredible closeness, this incredible intimacy in my relationship with God. It was so valuable, so amazing, so precious in my life that it was well worth the pain of confession and repentance to have what I received in the end. Now, the goodness of God's grace in my life is that four years later, I get a phone call from the Bible college, and I'm, by then I was a youth pastor in, in Nippon, Saskatchewan. I got a phone call, and they said, we're sending a team back to England to this church. We wonder if you'd be the staff leader to lead that team. So I said, well, um, hold that thought. I have to make a phone call. So I made a phone call to Dave Wicks, and I said, the school's just asked me to be the leader to send this, uh, to take the student team back to this church that I deceived years ago. And I wrote them a letter to their, the elders of that church to tell them exactly what I did, and, and I repented, but I never received the letter back. So I think it would be a really poor choice to send me as the leader to this church. And so I said, they don't know this, but you know this. So I said, I'm, I'm just telling you so you can confirm that I should not accept this invitation to go. And then Dave just said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Huh. No, I think you should go. I think you should go. And so I went. I'm flying across the Atlantic and going, am I going to get tarred and feathered when I get there? Are they going to say, you again? You're a deceiver. Why would the Bible college send you? Like, I did not know. Again, I'm, I was younger. I didn't know how these things could work. And I hadn't had that much experience in the body of Christ to know how much grace there can be. But I went there and I arrived in that church. I saw those same people. Some of them would have been the elders who would have got my letter. And they knew who I was. And they loved me. And they supported me. And they spoke encouragement into my life. And they said, you know what? We just think God's got his hand on you. And I was like, this is the gospel. We get what we don't deserve. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I experienced that. I've experienced that my whole life. It's just like, this is not... I. Where I am now, I'm just like the Israelites. In a city I didn't build, in a house I didn't build, with vineyards and olive groves, all that stuff they didn't plant. That's what God does in our lives. So the rest of our lives is lived in incredible joy and gratitude, knowing that what we got more than we deserved. I got more than I deserved in my life. And that's why in worship, there's joy, there's thankfulness, there's response. It's because I know the depth of my sin. I just told you one story. Boy, there's lots more than that. I know the depth of my sin, and I know the greatness of my Savior. And what should have caused me to hide 
the rest of my life in guilt has actually pushed me out into the light and it's caused me joy and gratitude ever after. Would you stand with me? I don't know about you, but maybe you're at that place. Maybe you're, you're just like David, or maybe like me. You're saying, I'm hungry for God. I really want God, but there's a distance. There's a need for God to create in me a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within me. And maybe it's, maybe it's big. Maybe it's big. Maybe there's a lot to deal with. I want to tell you, God can, God can forgive the big. God can walk you through the big. God can restore in the areas of the big. For some of you, maybe it's, it's small. You just go, man, I remember when I was just intimate with God. I was really walking with him. But I, it's not sort of where I'm at right now. But it just sort of seems like little things have sort of gotten in the way. I've gotten my focus off of him. I'm not seeking his face. I'm not... And God's got grace for the small, too. God, God will walk you through those things. He'll forgive the small, and he'll walk you through the small. But he's inviting all of us to an intimate relationship with him. He's inviting all of us to walk with him, step by step, in intimacy. And so would you pray with me? Would you pray with me? And I, I want to just, I want to pray for you and pray for myself, but I want to pray just that God would do that restoring work. Lord, you so loved us, you so loved us, that you were intent on enacting the best possible plan so that we would not be attached at the hip to our sin, but we'd be cut free. We'd be set free from our sin. We'd be separated from that and united with you. And God, you want relationship. You're knocking on our heart's door. You're saying, if you open this door, I'll come in and we'll eat together and we'll have a relationship together and we'll walk in life together and you won't be alone and I'll bring blessing into your life that you can't imagine. And so, Lord, for every, everyone in the room who said, more, I'm more like David, I can relate to the, the dastardly deeds that have been hidden, and I've got some of those. I pray they'd realize that you restore David, and you can restore them. And for all those ones who say, wow, Steve's story didn't even seem that bad. Don't know why he's crying about it. I pray you'd make them sensitive to sin. That we call it what it is. And we turn from it and turn to you. So right now, I just invite you to say, just in, the, in your heart of hearts, or just actually, let's repeat it after me. I want you to just say this. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. <laughs> Amen. Amen.